again and welcome back to episode 53 of Customers Who Click. What I'd like to know from you is, what is the number one thing that puts you off buying from a website? Just tweet your answers to Will Lawrenson. I'm really curious to find out what's getting in your way. This week, I've got another fantastic guest, Kendall McDonald, and we're going to be discussing buyer psychology and the customer journey. If you can understand buyer psychology, you know, how people buy, you'll be able to create a much more effective customer journey and therefore a more profitable business. But it's not just about you know looking at a landing page and thinking, well, how do we approach buyer psychology here? It's about looking at the whole journey as one and understanding the thoughts going through someone's head as they arrive on and browse your website. But there's a reason I've invited Kendra on the podcast, and so let's hear from her now. Hi, Kendra. Thanks for joining me today. Um, would you mind just telling us a bit about yourself, your background, um, why, how you've got to where you are today? Yeah, sure. Nice, nice to be here. Thanks, Will. Um, so I'm Kenna McDonald. I am the uh, CEO and founder of Automation Ninjas, and we specialize in behavioral marketing automation. So my background is actually originally in forensic psychology. And when I got started in marketing automation, um, while I was at university paying my way through uni, I realized that there was a big mismatch between sort of the way the brain works and how people put marketing together. And so I ended up creating my own company, um, trying to help businesses understand that. So trying to help businesses understand that the way that the brain evolved isn't um, really compatible with a lot of the marketing that we put out. So behavioral marketing automation is our specialization. It's really helping people understand the brain, helping people understand the customer journey, and then creating the marketing automation that really helps people get those uh, better quality leads, the longer customer lifetime value, um, and and sort of the higher conversion rates, all the good stuff that um, sort of buy psychology can do when you put it in your marketing. All right, sounds sounds great. I think... um... Yeah, biopsychology has been something I've been getting into a lot recently. I think as soon as you start doing a bit of research into it, you really really very quickly start to see the value and how you can really level up basically everything you're doing. So let's talk a bit more about biopsychology, particularly with the customer journey and I guess automation. Um, Like how do they fit together? Um, And I suppose when you talk about adding it into the, the automation, do you mean in terms of the messaging and the content or like timings and segmentation and stuff or a bit of both I suppose Mm. yeah yeah so it's definitely it's definitely a bit of both if you really start getting into the nitty-gritty of biopsychology and you really start getting into how the brain works how marketing messages are being perceived um, where we need to show up as businesses throughout the customer journey and you really start breaking things apart you start to realize that it touches everything in the customer journey. So you can't really break it out into little parts. I see a lot of businesses try and do that. They try and sort of separate it out and be like, oh, we're going to put a little bit of biopsychology on the landing page. And we're going to move this button around. And I'm like, no, you're missing the point. <laughs> you're missing the point completely. It touches everything, every interaction that you have um, with your consumer or your prospects or your customers, every tiny little bit that you do is either a sort of adding to or detracting from the experience that you're trying to create with your customer journey. Um, so it really is everywhere. Um, yes, there are little hacks that you can do that will improve a specific type of messaging or you know changing the timings between things can have an effect. 
But in general, it's trying to understand how that whole journey is being felt by your consumer and how their brain is working during the purchasing process and how everything is coming together in such a way that you are taking that into consideration in your marketing automation. It's making it more more kind of consumer friendly rather than we need to put out a sales campaign or we need to build a welcome campaign. It's sort of thinking about more what your consumer needs and then bring it together. So really, they fit hand in hand. Because when you get that understanding of your consumer, of the psychographics behind your consumer, um, of what your consumer needs in order to make a successful purchase, uh, what your consumer needs in order to become a repeat customer, when you start understanding that and you start bringing the buyer psychology into it, it will affect everything that you do naturally in your customer journey. So they, they fit together beautifully because you will start to create uh, really lovely materials and most of it is around the content. Content um, and content marketing is a really big part of what we do because the way you communicate, what you communicate and how you communicate to your audience is the thing that's going to affect affect that journey in the best way possible. Um, So they fit together beautifully, but it's predominantly through that messaging that you're sending out and then making sure that you're uh, sending that messaging in an appropriate way. Um, so that you're following up appropriately, that you're preempting the next steps, all that kind of stuff. And when you get that understanding, you start to see how the whole customer journey comes together and where your marketing automation fits in with it. Yeah, I think it, I guess it comes back a little bit to this idea of like there's no one size fits all approach to marketing. Um, and I think a lot of businesses do take that approach. You know, when setting up automation, a lot of businesses will just say, right, we need a welcome series, which is yeah. X number of emails over Y number of days. We need a abandoned cart flow, which is going to be an email immediately, an email a day later with a 5% discount and an email a few days later after that with a 10%. Yeah. And then we need a follow-up flow after a purchase and we get those in place. Good, good job. We're done. We can move on to other things. <laughs> um, but then actually, yeah, when you, which I, I guess, you know, if you're a new business, maybe fine, just get it in place so that it's, you've got something. Yeah, you've got to start better. somewhere, right? Um, start somewhere. But, but when, yeah, <laughs> when you really start to understand your audience and how they buy and and the considerations they go through, what you might realise is that actually, I don't know. For example, instead of sending a normal abandoned cart email saying you left this in your cart, do you want to f- complete your purchase? You might realise that actually a better thing to do is send a bit of information, yeah, like a a manual on. Yeah, I suppose actually, just thinking this through, uh, you could send like the manual for the product that they've ordered or where they were in that that was in their basket, mm. almost as if they have purchased it. And you go, cool. Um, you know, we noticed you were looking at this. Here's the manual to get to help you get it set up, and maybe just somehow linking in that abandoned cart bit. But basically, giving the giving them that last bit of information. Um, you know, one thing I had a post on LinkedIn that went it did fantastically recently. Oh yeah. I was talking about, uh, in fact, the headline was features tell benefits sell. And one of the things, in fact, I think it was the, the example I gave was a, a bookshelf or something or, or some uh, shelves that go on the wall or something. And people are asking the question of how is it going to attach to the wall? Um, and one way of putting it is it's got adhesives adhesive attachments whatever to keep it stuck to the wall but another way of putting it is that the adhesives mean you don't need a drill yeah you don't need that tool that 
for some reason people like me still don't have even though <laughs> I'm in my 30s and I don't have a drill um, I've many drills <laughs> that's the that's that benefit that sells it and that's what you might get through sending that extra piece of information to, from the abandoned cart which kind of allows that person to just check off all those final pieces yeah um, and there's bound to be information in there that will that will convince someone you know they get a full uh there's always information that someone leaves off a product description, for example, um, but ends up in the manual for it. Um, yeah. That's an idea I need to play around with, actually. Yeah, it is. it's <laughs> one of the things when we do our cart abandonment series, we do them differently to the way other people do. So we don't, um, just like you described, have like cart abandonment series as two emails. Um, we generally try and stick to a few emails, but what we do is we make them, if we can tell what the product is, it depends on the software you're using, but if we can tell what the product is that someone has um, abandoned um, or click through from and not purchased, because you don't only have to do that if you're e-commerce. Um, so if someone has clicked through and, and not gone and completed the end goal of purchasing the product, we have a couple of extra emails that fire off at the end of the sales series, time-bound emails. And they they don't have a little discount or, or that kind of thing in them because we're not we're not negatively training our audience, so we're not training them that when there is inaction, we're going to give them something extra. Yep. Um, because yes, that will get you a little boost in sales, but it has a longer negative impact on your business. Um, so we're we're not doing that. Instead, what we're doing is we always send a really nice pain driven email series. So a couple of emails that are really keying in on the core reason why someone might buy that product or service. And it's very different to the way most people do their car abandonment emails, but it's because we do it because that's what the brain needs. The brain needs to understand that, you know, they're having a bad time right now. We need to talk to that pain, talk to the reason that they might buy that product or service. Let's talk to that pain, talk to that problem that they have right now and let's show them that if they don't do the thing, if they don't sort of piss or get off the part, then it's only going to get worse, right? So we push on the pain points a little bit and then add some benefits into that. So that rather than training them that if there is no inaction, we're going to give them a reward, we're saying to them, look, you looked at that product or service for a very specific reason. Now it's time to actually take the action. So we're obviously not doing yep. that in a normal way, but that has really good conversion rates. You know, it really mops up those those extra people because you're just reiterating what they're already feeling and you're exemplifying to them why they need to go through and complete that action based on their own actions. Yeah, yeah, exactly. I think um, basically the, the common method of doing it is basically just putting it back in front of someone's face and saying, "By the way, you we're going to buy this. Mm. Finish your purchase." Yeah. Whereas the the better method, which is what you, you're talking about, is here is why, like you were, it's almost like saying you were so close. Here's yeah. why we think you should finish that purchase. Yeah. Like obviously, you know, I don't know what's a what would be a a product. I don't know something to do with neck pain or something. Yeah. Yeah, neck pain. Um, you can either say here is the pillow you were going to buy, mm-hmm. or you can say basically on the lines of here is the pillow you, you were going to buy, which happens to really, uh, really help with neck pain, can solve mm. these issues, give you a better night's sleep, get rid of headaches, whatever, stress. Yeah. All the actual benefits, which is the reason why, and makes you go, oh yeah, maybe actually I should buy this, this product. Because if someone's abandoned the cart, there is, you know, one option is they got distracted, ran out of time, whatever, just 
had to had to close had to close the browser and, and move on to something else. In which case, that simple reminder might work. But in other cases, it's uh, you know they've got all the way to checkout, and something has mm. changed their mind. Might be shipping, in which case, obviously, you need to look at shipping as an issue. Um, but it could just be that they were never fully convinced. Yeah. Made that purchase. Exactly. And when it got to the point of putting a credit card in, they went, actually, no, I'm going to wait on this. Yeah. Or, or you've got an audience that is super trained to wait on it anyway because you might, they might get a 5% discount, right? I remember this getting mentioned years ago. It was almost like a, an entire thing on kind of Twitter and LinkedIn about basically abandoned carts with discounts were the big marketing thing that everyone was talking about <laughs> and how it became a thing. Like you, everyone knew you went to a site, you added a product to cart and then you left yeah. and you get your discount later. It doesn't seem to happen so much, but now, but I wonder if that's just because the majority of people have clocked onto that and realized that if they just put a discount in there, it's just costing them money. Possibly. I mean, I still see far too many businesses do it. And the, the thing we try and get businesses to think about instead is let's think about why they may have abandoned that car. What, what is the core reason to why they may have left that? Think about your product and think about your service. Think about, you know, like these people that have clicked through to your product or service um, or these people who have added something into the car if you are doing e-commerce. They've done that for a very specific reason. They've gone through and looked at that product and service because they're interested in it. They're way more interested than the people who didn't. Um, and why would they have abandoned it at that point? You're always going to get your subset of people who did get distracted um, who, or who do actually like have some kind of problem, like they shut their browser down. But the majority of people, you just, like you said, haven't convinced enough. So is it the case of it's too expensive? It's this, it's that. So can you, in those emails, handle their objections? Can you talk to their pain points if pain is a really big driver? Can you add the benefits in? Can you send them case studies and testimonials? You know, what can you do to, you know, continue that conversation? Because if you think about having a conversation with somebody and you think about where someone's a bit like, mm, you know, about a product or service, you don't just go, okay, and then sit back and just like let them feel that that discomfort, um, you convince them a little bit more, right? You spend a little bit more time explaining something, adding value, educating, and you should just do that with your car abandonment. Um, all you're doing is you're trying to increase the reward value activation in the brain. And if you can do that enough, you're going to get the purchase, right? So um, create a really good car abandonment series and you win with that. I feel like I've said this a lot recently, actually, but it feels like too many brands assume that once they get someone to the website, it's basically job done <laughs> and they're either going to buy or they're not. But there's nothing really, even though they know you can, it feels like there's nothing that you can really do to convince someone. It, they're either going to buy that product or they're not. Um, and therefore, you know, there's not much point. It's almost like there isn't much point putting a, effort into abandoned cart. You might as well just remind them of the product and if they're not going to buy, they're not going to buy, but you're right. It, it's it's just just poor. Um, are there any misconceptions around using behaviour uh, biopsychology in the journey? Like, are there, are there reasons people might think I don't need to do this, or it's it's yeah. you know it's not worth the time? Yeah, 
A lot of reasons. <laughs> I think one of the big misconceptions is that it's all like a whole bunch of touchy-feely woo psychology stuff, right? I think that's that's one of the big reasons is people tend to think that it's something that's really esoteric. They don't really understand what biopsychology means. I think most of the time people aren't utilizing it because they don't have understanding of of how that really applies to things. And, and really, that's a failing of the industry more than anything else. It's not people's fault that they feel that way. Um, but a, a really common misconception is that it's doing something like changing the color of a button on a page or, you know, like understanding cognitive biases and exploiting them as much as possible. Those are the biggest common misconceptions we get. And I, I think when I go around and I speak at conferences and stuff, people really expect me to stand up there and tell them that. They expect me to stand up and tell them the five hacks that they can do that are going to massively increase their conversion rates. I, w- I was hoping you would say that word (laughs) I I do feel like the whole you know I think it's Sean Ellis isn't it growth hacking yeah what what he did was absolutely fantastic what growth hacking became over the next few years is just such a mess of terrible terrible advice and 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 ways to market market because it's it's just that word it's a hack which means it's not a proper way of doing anything. It's like a quick fix. And to be honest, even like compared to what he called growth hacking, the majority of growth hacking was rubbish as well. Yeah. Didn't do much. You know, you get, I I was in a bunch of uh, Facebook groups for some are called literally like SaaS growth hacks. um, And some were just marketing groups, but people would say like, Oh, this is how I hacks my way to a hundred thousand reads on medium. (laughs) <laughs> and and what they did was interesting they lay they lay out the approach and you were kind of like okay cool yeah i get this what does it do for the business and the answer to most of the time is zero nothing yeah. and even like a growth hack was considered uh you know go onto twitter and follow a load of people because they'll follow you back <laughs> and that's how you can get your first thousand followers it's like well it's not really that's that's not a hack that's not it's not doing anything but i think yeah that yeah. kind of a approach is just it, it's meant that yeah when you when you get uh, those uh, like behavioral economics and those mm. nudges you can do on site and things where if you do it right they work fantastically yeah. but most people don't do them right they yeah. stick a massive banner on the website saying uh buy in the next 30 seconds otherwise the price is doubling yeah and that doesn't really do anything for anyone no um but you no. could you could probably do that exact same message in a in an appropriate way, which makes people go, oh, cool, I need to buy this now before I miss out. This is the one thing, the, the word hack and, and what it's become is the one thing that makes me really sad about the name of my book because the book's yeah. called <laughs> Hack by a Brain, right? And it's the, the entire purpose of the book was to teach people about how the brain evolved and the fact that we are hacking our brains all day, every day. We are using our brains for things that they were never intended to be used for. Like our brains literally evolved to get us to the next day and to pass our genes on. That's that's what we evolved to do in the most efficient way possible, right? Um, it did not evolve to buy things online and to scroll endlessly through Reddit and that kind of stuff. That is not what our brains evolved to do at all, you know? So it, the purpose of the book was to help people understand that and help people understand how that you know, how that evolution and how the way our brains are wired and the neuroscience, what that means for our marketing. Um, And it was really, 
you know, a bit of a catchy title, but then growth hacking became this thing. And I was like, oh no, (laughs) you ruined everything. (laughs) Yeah. So yeah, the big misconception is that it's like, oh, change the, you know, put the most expensive price first and then put the lower price. You know, that's the misconception about about biopsychology is that it is these little hacks and it's these tiny little things that you just do here and you do there and and it you know suddenly it's going to make your business way more successful it's really not what it's about it's it's kind of about strategically understanding your consumer and understanding how to show up and serve that consumer better and i use the word serve really purposefully not in like a crazy american way but like you you are there to educate and add value to your consumer if you want to keep them coming back for your second sale third sale fourth sale etc if you want customer lifetime value you are there to build a positive relationship and hacks are not going to get you that at all well everything pretty much everything i do now with clients starts off with uh what are the customers needs and wants and then what are the companies needs and wants yeah. And making sure that first you cover all the customer needs at once, then you focus on the on the business ones. And obviously you can blend it a little bit. It's not as black and white as them first and the business. Mm. But, you know, we were reviewing an order confirmation page for, for a client to see what value, extra, basically extra value the business could get from it. And the first thing was, right, what does the, comp- what does the customer want from this page? Mm. Let's make sure we give them all that information. And then how do we build around that? Mm. what we need to get for the company yeah um and we're in the process of building that out and and there's some other things i'm looking at with other clients like some some is email stuff some is the on-site stuff but it's always you know what does the customer want not what sort of little message or or trick can we put on there mm. to to convince someone to to click a button yeah um, Crazy. because uh, along with the so actually yeah kind of related to the growth hacking comment about um basically like pointless metrics and things, you know, here's, here's how I reached a hundred thousand people on Twitter, right? No one cares. It's like me saying I can get a hundred thousand people to click the add to cart button on a Mm. website. I could, there are loads of tricks I could do to get that done. But what you, what you care about is how many people then fill in their credit card details and complete the purchase. And if that's no one, or if everyone returns the product or if basically you don't make any money off it, it's just pointless. Yeah. Cause it, I think I get where these hacks come from, right? And and I've been guilty in the past kind of, you know, I've done talks on like some cognitive biases that you need to understand and that kind of thing. But but the, the problem with them is people approach it from how do I get this little end result here? So how do I get more clicks to this button? Exactly what you're talking about, right? They, they approach it from that respect. And what they don't do is they don't understand the foundation behind why that cognitive bias is happening. So, for instance, like, have you seen the economists' pricing structure um, and and how they messed up their pricing structure and totally ruined their profits for a little while? Have you seen that? Uh, I know of a bundling thing they did, but go on, explain. Okay, so basically, if you take a look um, at an old economist pricing structure, they had a couple of things on the website. They had this thing where they had like the price of a print copy, a print subscription for the economist. Then they had the the, the price of a web subscription, and then and then the print and web subscription, right? And they had different pricing. And so, like the print subscription was say twenty five dollars, 
the web subscription was, um, I think it was, I think the print subscription was like $50, $25 for the web subscription. And then print and web was also $50, right? So when you when your brain looks at that and tries to understand the pricing, it goes, oh, wait, 25 plus 50 is not 50, right? Yeah. So it looks at the print and web and goes, that's a fantastic deal. That's yeah. the one I'm going for, right? It's not going to buy, you know, the, mo the more expensive one by itself because it can get something at the same price because of that. Um, so they had this pricing thing. And when you looked at kind of like the, the, it was a UX mistake that they made. When you take a look at who's clicking through, you can see that there is like, one of them that is totally not being clicked through to. And that is the one where it's just $50 um, print only subscription. Yep. Right. Um, so they got rid of that option and they removed it from the page because it was a useless non-converter. What ended up happening was suddenly everyone stopped buying the $50 option, which was the majority choice that people were purchasing was the print and web subscription for $50. And suddenly everyone started buying the $25 option because it was the cheaper option because you had $25 or $50. And this is a cognitive bias that we have. It's coherent arbitrariness and it's setting, we set a baseline for ourselves, right? So we can understand that the price differential between 25 plus 50 is not 50, right? We can, our brains can get that and our brains can see that we're getting a really great deal if we get the 25, uh, if we get the $50 option because we're, we're basically saving $25. We're not saving anything because we could just get the $50 option or the $25 option, but our brains use that as a baseline. And the really interesting thing about that is that economists lost tons of money because of the change that they made, and they ended up reverting back to that pricing structure. And you'll see those pricing structures all over the place as a result. And it was sort of like heralded as this amazing UX thing that people came up with. And it was like, no, <laughs> there is a real biopsychology thing happening behind that. It's a cognitive bias that's, happen that's happening called coherent arbitrariness. Um, and it's a framing issue right? Because the brain needs to understand things when it's looking at it. And when you set a baseline and you create a frame, it has context and it has meaning, right? So if you give the brain context and meaning, it can make appropriate choices. Yeah. And what people did is they didn't understand that bit. They didn't get the bit that it was about context and meaning, giving people a frame that they can understand and controlling the frame for them to make choices easier. They just latched onto the fact that we need to bundle things together. And that's the thing that still gets taught. Bundle so, together. I I didn't know they'd messed that up. Oh, did you not? No. I I knew what they'd done and I saw it as a, oh, this makes complete okay. sense because of what you've explained. 25 plus 50 is 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 not 50. So I'm saving money by buying the print and uh and digital edition. But no, yeah. No, they, they they messed it up. It was a total but, mistake. But if you take out mm the print edition, because obviously no one's clicking it, but I've always seen it as a, we know that product is there not to be purchased. That product is there to actually convince people to purchase the other product. Yeah. Yeah. And, and, I, and it, I didn't realize they'd messed that up. <laughs> no, they totally messed it up. It was a mistake removing it. And they, um, I can't remember the exact thing. It's in the book somewhere. It's one of the examples in the book for a cognitive bias. Um, I can't remember the exact thing, but I think they lost like 60% of, wow. of their of, of their profits as a result. <laughs> so it was an extreme, it wasn't only a mistake, but it was an extremely expensive mistake. Yeah. Um, so they very quickly changed it back. 
Um, and it and it still works fine. You know, That's I don't know what their pricing looks like at the moment, but it stayed like that for a very, very long time. It, it wouldn't surprise me if it's the same um, as yeah. that. And I think the, the times do that as well. I think you can yeah. buy. It's become I, I a very common thing. Yeah, it's like £99 for print, 99 for digital, or it's 129 for both. Yeah, exactly. Um, which is which is slightly different, I suppose, because you are still paying a higher amount to get both, but you are thinking 99 plus 99 is not 129. Exactly. Therefore, I'm saving money by spending more. Exactly. And, um, and it's that kind of thing. All you've done is you've given the brain a bit of context. You've given, you've controlled the frame that the brain is kind of seeing around something. It's a totally arbitrary frame, right? It's an arbitrary frame that makes no sense really, because if you looked at it logically, you'd be able to see it. But our brain is trying to save on time, it's trying to save on capacity, it's trying to save on um, power. It doesn't like burning calories. It doesn't like thinking. So effectively, it's going to make what it thinks is the most you know, sort of sensible choice. And it just jumps to a conclusion. So all you're doing is you're giving it a bit of a a frame. So that's, um, that's, and it's an arbitrary frame and it's called coherent arbitrariness because it always happens, you know, it happens continually if you set the frame. And that is so sad that that context and meaning around framing is the bit that people have lost. That's the bit that they didn't latch onto. They latched onto, let's bundle stuff up together. Yeah. I see it being executed really poorly very often. And I'm like, no, you've missed the understanding well, behind it. I suppose it's it's like what they do in supermarkets a lot, isn't it? Yes. You can buy one for £1.50 or two for £2. Yeah. Or maybe £2.50. Um, so loads of people buy the two of them because they think they're saving money, but actually mm-hmm. they've spent more than they were going to spend. Exactly. Yeah. Because, I mean, there'll be certain products you do go in and just buy two of um, but the majority of time with these promotions, and in fact, it probably is set up exactly in this way. Mm. All the promotions, or almost all of them, are set up because to target products that people would only normally buy one of. Yeah. But by giving you a discount on a second one, uh, they're getting you to to spend more money. Um, and it gives you a good indication of what their profit margins are and what those things actually cost to them. Yeah, if they can sell, if they can apparently sell you another one for fifty p. Um, or for you know an extra third all sorts of sneaky stuff like when you when you often look we're so used to the idea that things that come in bulk are cheaper than than buying things singularly that we will often spend more money buying something in bulk yeah (laughs) like like a magnum of champagne for instance is way more money (laughs) for i mean obviously sometimes you're buying a magnum for a specific reason but you know you'll see it with some of the cheaper brands where no one is buying a Magnum for that specific reason, right? You're, you're buying a bigger bottle of wine or a bigger bottle of champagne or, or a box of wine, which always looks like it's going to be cheaper because it's a box. It's more expensive. Yeah. You're, so you're, you're, they're, they're relying on the fact that your brain is going to make a shortcut. It's got a cognitive bias. It's always going, I'm buying it in large quantities. It's going to be cheaper. And yep. sometimes it just isn't anymore. You have to be, you have to be well, careful. I think box wine also has a it has a reputation for being cheap, whereas now yeah. actually yeah. it's getting quite it's not cheap. anymore. Yeah. Um, what's interesting there though is when you said Magnum, I pictured the ice cream, not a bottle of wine. <laughs> no, I mean like more than a liter of champagne. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> which is how I like to have my champagne. <laughs> um, what are what are some of the key things a brand should be thinking about then, or Maybe I don't even think about, but 
what what should a brand be doing or what should their staff be doing if they want to be using this this biopsychology properly mm. you need to really sit down and think about your consumer and it's so hard for businesses to do this and i'm not talking about sitting down and creating a persona they're useful if they're done properly I'm thinking of, I'm talking about thinking about the entire process. Your consumer has to go through the process of buying a pair of shoes, for instance. What are all the steps that they're going to go through? What information do they need at each stage of the buying process? How are they going to be, you know, what are they researching? What do they need to progress to the next step? If you're really going to get into the biopsychology process, the best advice I can give you is to get really clear on your awareness levels. So um, actually, I'll run through them real quick. Yeah, go on. Awareness starts with somebody, and this is just a model that Eugene Schwartz created way back when, um, and then we've kind of proved it with neuroscience all the way along now and, and the general buying process. Um, but your brain goes through very specific steps in order to buy something. It does not matter whether you are B2C or B2B or even B2G, so business to government. You're going to go through the same steps in order to feel comfortable purchasing something. The only difference between the B2B and B2C buying cycles in that respect is that B2C tends to be a lot faster and B2B tends to be protracted and B2G as well, very protracted and have I, lots of decision makers involved. I have a, a little question about that, actually. Go on. Go on. On, the, on the B2B to B2C. And B2C. Mm. Is, I would have thought there's a difference for B2B because it's kind of a case of saying, at the end of the day, it's not my money. Mm. No. Obviously, sometimes you get a founder <laughs> or whoever, who, and it is their money. But you know, yeah. you get a maybe a marketing director or someone, mm. and at the, you know, they they might, to their best of ability or whatever, you know, assess a service provider or a tool. Mm. But at the end of the day, there's probably a little less, a little less due diligence, I guess, put into that purchase or consideration put into the purchase because at the end of the day, it's not their money. Potentially, however, in order to make a purchase decision. So decide to decide whether or not to spend money, regardless of whether it's your money or someone else's money, we use the same part of the brain, right? Um, so we actually, in order to understand the cost of something, the pain centers of the brain fire. Um, so it's a part of the brain. This is what led to the book being called Hack the Biobrain. It's a, pain, a part of the brain that was never evolved to deal with cost. Our brain doesn't really understand how cost works. So the way our brain looks at costs is we're giving away resources. We're giving away resources. That's a bad thing that, that we need to make that painful because giving away resources decreases our chances of survival, right? A bit of justification, a bit of uh, sort of evolutionary and social psychology coming in there. Yeah. But that is the, that's the justification for why the brain is using the pain centers of the brain to understand cost because it's not the part of the brain that we thought was going to use uh, to be involved with that. Um, so everyone has to go through these same steps in order to have satisfied that and to be able to make a decision. And that decision is the same regardless of whether you're spending your own money or spending someone else's money because the brain can't distinguish between the two. At, at like a base level, it can't distinguish between those. You might be a little bit more flippant about spending some kind of money, but you're still understanding money in the same way. And the steps for a purchase decision are the same regardless of whether you're B2B or B2C. So it's tempting to think that way. But when we think about the fact that the brain, as clever and as fantastic as it is, can only do so much, and it's utilizing weird parts of itself to understand modern life, um, 
then we come we come back to the same foundational blocks. Okay. All the time. Yeah. So in going through these purchase steps, you've got things like you you've got the various different awareness stages. People start off unaware that they need a product or service because they don't know that they've got a problem, right? So everyone starts off at unaware. They don't know that they've got an issue. They don't know that they need something. Um, they're just bumbling along. Sometimes there are symptoms of a problem there, sort of sort of niggling about. Um, but then something happens. There's a catalyst and people suddenly realize, oh damn, I've got an issue. I need to, I need to solve this problem. That is what Google calls the zero moment of truth. It is the point at which we turn to the internet or turn to trusted uh, sources of information. And we try and figure out what our problem is. We try and quantify our problem and, and give it a little bit of context. Once we have satiated our desire for understanding what our problem is, we move on to um, what's called solution aware, where we, be, we start to realize that there are solutions out there that will help us with our problem. There are ways to fix that problem. When we're solution aware, we do a lot of research into the different options that we have available to us. And then finally, as we're moving through solution aware, we'll start to notice that there are specific options that are more appropriate for us and we become product aware. We become aware that there are products and services out there that can help us with our issue. And finally, we'll transition as we um, sort of go through and eliminate different products and services, we will become most aware, which is where we're like, okay, these are the ones I'm choosing between which one like most rightly fits me. And then we'll make a purchase decision. So to give you a B2B example, Let's just take the example of, I don't know, let's do marketing automation, right? So maybe someone is really struggling to keep up with their business, with their leads and that kind of stuff. They have to go out, they have to hustle for leads. They're doing it through networking. They're drumming stuff up on LinkedIn. They're kind of creating lots of exciting things and getting leads to come in. And then they're like really working hard on those leads, but then they take that work on and they have to stop working on the leads because they can't manage both processes at the same time. And then the work finishes and they have to run back to the beginning again. And it's quite an exhausting process, right? Let's say someone's at that point. They probably haven't realized at that point that they need marketing automation in their lives, right? They, they're they're not they're not kind of uh, sipping the Kool Aid just yet at that point. Um, they're just trying to get by. But then perhaps something happens. They hear a talk. They see someone else talking about it, and they realize, oh, actually, I could automate some of this process, and I could have leads coming in continuously. I wouldn't have to hustle so hard to get them in the first place, and I can focus on just fulfilling them and converting them. Um, and they realize that they might need marketing automation. That's the moment that they've become problem aware. And when they when they become problem aware, they'll start researching, you know, like, what is marketing automation? How do I handle lead generation? How do I handle lead nurture? They might go through all the process and research a lot about that. They'll then become aware that there are different options available to them within marketing automation. So they can do this, they can do welcome campaigns, they can do that. There's a ton of information out there on all the different things that they could do. And finally, they'll become product aware where they realize maybe something like MailChimp or HubSpot or Infusionsoft or ConvertKit can help them. Maybe working with a consultant is the way forward for them. They'll start to realize that there are specific products or, or, or options out there for them. And then they'll sort of start researching those specific things and narrowing things down and deciding what to do. That could be a B2B cycle. It's very long and protracted for the most part. But if you take a look at B2C, um, the example I like to use is I, I'm, I'm now a runner. This was a thing that I never was before. <laughs> um, it's a new thing for me. And I do trail running. And I run outside because it's a way that I can get outside. And I generally do it quite early. And I started doing it in the depths of winter, 
right? And I had no awareness when I first started running that cold feet were a thing or that your muscles can get fatigued by the cold and you need to be warm. And there are different types of clothing that you can wear that having moisture wicked away from your body is very important in the winter because otherwise you just freeze and then your muscles get fatigued. Having soggy feet is disgusting. I didn't know any of these things. I just thought I just go out there and I'll just run. Right. And then after going through a few puddles and running in the snow a few times and doing these things, I started to realize that I needed to actually take a look into some running gear. I'd become problem aware at that point. So I went off and I researched various different options and I realized what I was doing was trail running. This was a revelation to me that trail running is a thing. People who run outdoors and not on roads, but run in forests and that kind of stuff like I do. Um, there are special people who do that. And you need special gear for that. You need special types of shoes. You need, um, you know, decent gear. I totally drank the Kool-Aid on that, like for sure. And so I went off and researched. And I, so at that point, I was becoming product aware, right? I was starting to research, like realize that there are solutions out there for my soggy feet. I can have waterproof trail running shoes. There are specific products. Carrymore does a great range of waterproof trail running shoes. Um, so I went through solution aware and product aware relatively quickly. And I came to the decision that I'm going to buy this one by going through all of the reviews, taking a look what other people were saying on YouTube and just understanding what other people were doing. And I went through all the same steps that somebody in the B2B cycle would be going through until I got to the point where I bought the pair of shoes that I now have, right? So we go through these awareness stages, but if you as a business can understand the awareness stages that your consumer is going through, and understand how to provide the right kinds of information for those prospects and leads that are coming into your into your funnels, you can make sure that you are actually creating a customer journey that they want to be a part of. So I would have I would have loved to have gone onto Karen Moore's site in the beginning, so typed in some stuff. My SEO comes like gets pinged up, brings up one of their pages, and been able to find all that information on Karen Moore's site. That's not what happened. I didn't buy my shoes from Caramore. I bought my shoes from another company that specializes in trail running. They're still Caramore shoes, but I bought it from them because they had blog posts that explained to me what it was that I was doing, explained to me the criteria I should be looking for. And they took me hand, like hand helped me through the entire process. If you can do that and you can understand what that process is that your consumer goes through and provide information at those right points in time, you'll be way ahead of everybody else because you'll be able to create something behaviorally. Yeah, it's really interesting because uh, that's exactly what I'm going through with one client at the moment. Mm. Um, we're working on like basically an entire website rebuild. And in this particular industry, I think there's very much the idea that uh, the customers who come to these businesses are pretty knowledgeable in what they're doing. Mm. A survey we've just run has shown they're not. Interesting. Um, generally, it's, it's quite evenly split. I'd say that they are kind of like, they all rate themselves bang down the middle, really. Mm. Um, but it means that they're not as well educated and informed as as we expected them to be. Mm. Um, but that was also kind of uh, what I what I was thinking anyway, because I, I was an example customer um, mm. of someone who knew I wanted to buy from this particular style of business and go down this product route, but had no real idea of what I was doing. Yeah. I just knew that the end result would be better for me. Yeah. Um, but yeah, so we're looking, we're, we're looking at going down this process of how can we build a new purchase journey for these customers that 
accounts for the fact that some people really do know what they're doing. And there is generally a higher level of knowledge for people who come to these websites as opposed to uh, what I would maybe explain as like high street stores versions. Mm-hmm. Um, but also bearing in mind that they're not fully, yeah, you know, they, they have a higher level of knowledge, but they're not all experts. Yeah. So how do we how do we create a purchase journey which guides them along, but yeah. doesn't treat them as if they as if they're idiots? Yeah. Yeah, and it's it's so important because then you start to, I think the cardinal sin that I always see people do is someone comes to the website and they download a lead magnet and it will be something like, what is marketing automation, right? And then you get a phone call. Let's say you go to HubSpot. HubSpot's really bad at doing this. <laughs> you, go, you go onto HubSpot's website, you download a lead magnet that is like, what is marketing automation? So you're like, obviously way low at the bottom of the journey, right? You've got a lot, a lot of steps to go before you're going to be comfortable buying a platform. You're not even looking for buying a platform. You're trying to suss out what marketing automation is. You probably don't even know that there are different platforms at that point in time. And then HubSpot yeah. phones you and is like, do you want to buy? And you're like, no, <laughs> I don't want to buy because I don't know what you do. Yeah, it's right? funny you use that example. Uh, I think I saw a comment either on, I think on LinkedIn, uh, Twitter actually today oh, yeah. um, about how HubSpot are bad at that. Yeah. You know, they uh, they really push the content and it's great. They've got great content, Yeah. but they then do. they they don't match up their sales process mm-hmm. with the content. No. Um, which is really interesting because I'm pretty sure they got loads of praise for their um their sales approach in the early days yeah it was very different in the early days to what it is now it's kind of like anyone enters the site and it's like a a free-for-all in terms of you get pretty hounded with sales also their their prices have shot up but um quite insane yeah cool so we've probably discussed a few but are there any common mistakes or big mistakes, which one's the better question to ask you? Mm-hmm. Um, when people approach the the kind of the customer journey with with biopsychology, and I, I know we've talked about basically being unsubtle with all the stuff and just yeah. not really appreciating that these aren't like hacks and things. You you mm-hmm. can't, you know, sticking a massive countdown timer isn't gonna do much, but subtly introducing a countdown. A, a format of a countdown onto a product page might work really well. Mm. One example I really love, obviously, is Amazon. Yeah. You know, Amazon, brand-wise, nobody really cares, I don't think. But per- for purchasing, it's just the best experience. Yeah. And um, I took a screenshot of it for, for a webinar I did back in November, I think. And, and so it was in the lead-up to Christmas. And they just had all these little things, these little nudges all over the product page. You know, it was one of them was um, this deal only has 10 hours left, right? So you knew you only had 10 hours left, otherwise the price was going to go up, but yeah. it was done subtly. But then there was also, and this confused me a little bit, to be honest, um, it also said this deal is uh, X percent complete or something. But oh. I wouldn't, I didn't know what that meant. But it was kind of supposed to nudge me into thinking, yeah. I, if I if I wait, I'm going to miss out. Yeah. Then they had the classic, you know, if you order by, actually for this one, it might have been if you order in the next forty three minutes, uh, you will re- you can receive it tomorrow. Yeah, yeah. I love that one. So then they also had something like, um, then there was the extended returns one, 
you know, and this purchase is eligible for return until 31st of January, I think. Mm. So that's another little kind of nudge for me to say, all right, I've got, I've got ages to change my mind on this. Mm. Um, and they just did it. They just did it so well. Whereas I think other companies just insist on trying to, I don't know, put the focus on everything. Yeah. And it means that actually nothing really grabs your attention, but it all kind of puts you off. I guess it, it means that these websites, they, the key bit of information you take from the page when you leave is that you had three hours left to make the purchase. Yeah. Not that this product is going to solve the pain for you. No, it's interesting. But but then that's not what Amazon's up for, right? Amazon knows that it's got enough of a share of a marketplace that its focus isn't on providing a good customer journey. It's providing a good checkout experience. So it has a very different job to do to what a lot of us have to do. We can use these little nudges to improve our, our, our processes but what Amazon wants to do is when it's got you on the site, it wants you to make that purchase yeah. because it knows when it's got that traffic, it just needs to get the traffic through. Whereas for other businesses, I think the biggest misconception that that we have or the biggest mistakes that, that us as businesses have is not really understanding the purchase process at all. So there's a very, very specific thing that happens in the brain in order for a purchase to happen successfully, right? Really, really specific. And it's a fantastic, if you'll indulge me on on, exp, on explaining, um, on me explaining a little bit of how the brain works. Absolutely, go for it. Um, so there's a fantastic bit of research done by Professor Brian Knudsen at Stanford University. And um, what they basically did is they put people in fMRI scanners and they gave them a, an arbitrary amount of money. They gave them, um, and then they showed them some products and said, would you buy the product? So people saw the product, they saw the price of the product, and then they just clicked the button to say yes or no while the fMRI scanner was going. So for the first time, we got to actually see the process the brain was going through and it was deciding whether or not to purchase something. And it was fascinating. Gave us results that we just weren't expecting to see at all. So when people saw the product, when people saw the thing that they were being asked whether or not they would buy, lots of examples of products, but definitely the most universal is chocolates. We showed them like a box of really nice chocolates and then showed them the price of the chocolates and said, would you buy it? And so when people saw the product itself, the reward centers of the brain kind of lit up like a Christmas tree. This is what you'd expect. This is what everyone kind of expected. You see the product that you want, you emulate having the product. Um, and if it's a positive reaction, the reward centers of the brain go, yes, you should buy that thing. We'll feel good if you buy that, right? Um, and then that, that was totally expected. But it was when they saw the price that, that it totally threw the cat amongst the pigeons. We definitely expected, if you follow Antonio Damasio and his kind of decision-making process, he says that um, decision-making um, must have emotion in it. Emotion is indispensable in the decision-making process. We have to have a tinge of emotion in order to say yes or no. Um, so most people accept his, his neuroscience research into that, which is also fascinating. So everybody kind of expected that when people saw price, maybe a little bit of the logic centers would fire, so prefrontal cortex action, a little bit of the emotional centers uh, would fire, um, and people would basically make a pretty logical and emotion-driven decision around the, the product. Totally not what happened at all. <laughs> like, none of that happened. Instead, people saw the price and the pain centers of the brain fired. So literally the part of the brain 
that is responsible for dealing with physical trauma, like stubbing your toe or emotional trauma, like losing a loved one or being bullied, right? That part of the brain is what understands price for humans. And as I mentioned earlier, it's kind of bringing in the whole, you know, you're giving resources away, that kind of stuff. But it totally blew us all away when, when that bit of research was released. And as they were going through these scans, they were noticing that the relative reactions in the different parts of the brain. So the amount of reward reaction versus the amount of pain reaction that people were receiving um, affected whether or not people purchased. So that gave us the purchase formula. We know that you must have a higher reward activation than pain activation in order to purchase. You must have more reward activation, less pain activation. Now, the thing that you can control is the amount of reward activation. We can control that as brands and as businesses. We can we can um, put more effort into how people perceive our products and how people go through the customer journey. We can control that. What we cannot control is the amount of pain activation. Yes, you can do little things here and there to reduce that pain activation, but you cannot eliminate it. Right. You do not have as much control over that part of the process as you do over the reward stuff. So the big mistake I see people making is because there isn't clear understanding in that, everyone focuses on making the product as cheap as possible, making the checkout process as smooth as possible. And that stuff is important in a way. Um, there's actually a side note on that. Making your product cheaper doesn't necessarily mean that it's going to have less pain activation. So um, for instance, if you make a product too cheap, you can actually get high pain activation because yep. people become suspicious of your products, right? Yep. So. They need to be comfortingly expensive for the most part. Um, so there's definitely something in that on premium pricing. Um, but everyone focuses so much on that pricing sphere and the checkout sphere that they forget about the big thing that they have control over is the reward activation. So focusing on building positive brand association, doing things. This is why content marketing works so well, by the way. Content marketing, because you're building a longer relationship with someone and you are giving them more information over a longer period of time, you are increasing the amount of reward activation that your brain has in relation to your products and services, right? So you are actually um, affecting the purchase formula way before purchase even becomes a thing. That's why it's so important to get clear on those individual stages and how you can help people transition through the phases. Because what you're trying to do is you're trying to get people comfortable with your brand. You're trying to get them to see that you're an authority in the space. You're trying to work really hard to build a positive relationship with that consumer. And if you do that, you have higher reward activation. And that means you have way more control over the purchase formula. Just focusing on that pricing or swooping in there when someone is ready to buy means that you don't have enough reward activation compared yep. to maybe your competitors. So that's the one thing that I, it's just a massive mistake to me. It's like just focusing on that purchase thing. It is important to get those things in place, but you have way more work to do way earlier on in the journey that will wait like way more positively affect that. And not just after the first purchase, the second purchase, the third purchase, the fourth purchase, you know, that's where things really changed. So we focused on this with one of our clients, um, a company called New Zealand Natural Clothing. Um, don't judge me for their website. We don't do their website. <laughs> but they're um, they're pretty amazing. I love them. They're so fun to work with. They're so clear on what their mission is. And we really focused on just 
increasing that reward activation. And literally what we were doing was communicating value add consistently to their audience. We were sending them materials that they enjoyed reading. We were really clear on what their audience wanted to hear and what their audience needed to hear from the company. And we sent that consistently, literally an email a week. And that's a lot for an e-commerce company to blog posts and you know new things that were going on. So we got people to really understand who the company was, what they cared about, and tapped into what the audience cared about as well and sent content relating to that. Um, the, the first year that we started doing that, um, so we'd only just done it. I think we were only like a month into sending emails. So only four emails had gone out. The Mother's Day campaign happened for New Zealand Natural Clothing. And I think they made about $4,000 in that month from the Mother's Day campaign. Totally fine, pretty average. The second year that we did it, we kind of really got um, a lot more. The content wasn't going out consistently enough. Um, because of some stuff that was happening in the business at that time. But we managed to increase by, you know, just doing nice value add. We managed to increase their conversion rates by around 40%. I think it was 38.5% or 35.8% or yet. Um, so pretty good in, uh, increase in conversion rate, but not, not what we wanted. Then when we really knuckled down and consistently value added and spent a lot of time nurturing the audience and really got down to what the audience cared about and really spent time building those relationships, the second um, year that we were really doing that, the Mother's Day campaign had a 358% conversion rate, right? 350% higher um, than the previous year. So totally nuts conversion rate through yeah. the them um and it's and and it's been consistent ever since then you know like if you look at 2019 compared to 2020s conversion rates for the whole year you can see those 300 increases and all we did was those were their seasonal campaigns and we just focused the rest of the time on that real value add because we were focusing on increasing the reward activation that the brain was having in relation to their products and services and that's not only just increased how comfortable people are buying from that company, but it's also increased their um, frequency of purchases and how much they are spending each time they purchase. So the average order value is up and their recency, frequency, and monetary value are all up, right? So all the important stats for an e-commerce company. So that, yeah, that's absolutely. the power of doing that, right? So that's the bit that if you can nail that, the checkout isn't as important as the rest of it. Yeah. Yeah, right. I suppose it does come back to what I said earlier. If if someone comes to your site, they're either going to buy or not buy. And yeah. you don't, like, in a way, you don't really have to do much. But that should be related to don't spend too much time on your checkout process because if someone wants to buy, they'll buy. But they'll yeah. want to buy because they love the product and they, they know they really need that product. Yeah. Um, interestingly, uh, one of the first episodes I had Parry from Frazy on. And okay. he said that what, what they kind of discovered was that one of their clients used to run promotions all the time. Mm. They, I think they had got into that process of, oh, at least thinking internally, we have to run a discount in this email to get Ooh. new sales in. And, and what the their AI tool kind of basically told them was no one cares about the discounts. Mm. They're not, even though they, they weren't really being content-led or value-led, people mm. still, they weren't there for the discounts. They were there because they wanted to buy these products. No. And so they managed, I think you said, they got something like a 40% uplift. I don't know why I kind of slightly whispered that when it's being recorded. But um, <laughs> yeah, they got like a 40% uplift simply by taking off the discounts yeah. and, and putting and 
putting on more emphasis on the products and what they could use them for. So yeah, it does really work. And it's, it's what a lot of businesses need to pay attention to because you, yeah, you, you can't win if you discount. There's, no. there's a brand, uh, I won't say who they are, but I think everyone will know who they are. Uh, they're supplements brand in the UK who just always discount. Oh yeah. And it, get, that. it gets outrageous. <laughs> I think uh, I got one the other day, which was like a free, you got a free, uh, a free gift and you barely had to spend anything. It was literally like a free gift. And uh, and you get an email, and it feels like every email is this is the only time we'll ever do this. But here's eighty percent off, mm. or seventy percent, or sixty percent, and then eighty percent. And you're like, there's absolutely so, you know, there's that kind of feeling, and everyone says like, if you discount too much, everyone knows they never have to pay full price. Yeah. With this brand, it's got to that point where you never even have to pay fifty percent of the price. Yeah. Because they've just so heavily discounted it, and. Maybe it works for them. Maybe uh, maybe they know that's a really successful model for them and they're not just discounting, but but who knows? Yeah, I think it's um, one of those things where you um there are certain there are certain places where you can be the bottom denominator and, and win because of volume, right? You, yeah. you you can do that, but that's not a comfortable place to be because the second someone else comes along that can undercut you, your entire market is gone. And and I don't believe that businesses should compete on that. It's not the kind of well, we, we won't work with those kinds of businesses, for instance. Because, not even not even yeah. undercut you so much. They just have to be near your price. Yes. You know, they have to be 20 percent more expensive, mm. but twenty five to thirty percent more valuable. Yeah. And that's enough. And maybe it's an industry where it's difficult to show that value, yeah. that extra value. I don't know, but um but yeah um do you have any pet peeves when it comes to marketing i guess except people doing really bad uh like growth hacky tactics and things like that pet peeves um yeah bad emails and it's like hands down my pet peeve um aside from the hacks and stuff it's lack of effort <laughs> um just email where, blasts, basically. Yeah, just just yeah. email blasts, and, and or when you like, you get an email through, and you just you just look at that, and you go, "That's not been thought through properly." Obviously, I have a bias towards that because I'm in email all day, every day, because most of what we do is delivered via email, and um, so I, I spend a lot of time sort of being the email marketer, if that makes any sense. Yeah. Um, but I, I get really frustrated when my time is not appreciated as a consumer. So if you are appearing in my inbox and you are literally just showing up to, to sell me something, to get me to buy something that, that you want to put out and you haven't thought about who I am as a consumer, what I want to see, that really makes me want to hold smash my keyboard. Like I get some people, I know who they are. It's the gurus in the industry. You probably know who some of them are as well. The only time they ever show up is right before they're about to start a big sales campaign, right? Oh, yeah. And then your inbox just gets hammered by them. And, yeah. and that is just a, a real lack of um, respect for it, your audience. It's worse there because, yeah, you're right. You They... Most of them, there's a very few who will actually give you quality emails in the lead up. Yeah. But you're right. You won't hear from them for six months. 
Yeah. And then suddenly you're getting an email every few days and you know yeah. it's leading up to a product launch. Yeah. And the good ones, yeah, they give you they give you value on the way. Yeah. And then they say, right, if you want to if you want to really experience the full thing, here's my course or here's my book or whatever. Um but the bad ones just kind of the emails are rubbish, they're pointless. And it's literally just so that you recognize their name after a week or two when that sales email comes in. Yeah. Um, but by a, that time, you've recognized their, their name and so you just hit delete. Yeah, a, that's a massive, it's a massive pet peeve. That and, um, yeah, because that, that's just disrespect for your audience. You, you're literally just using them rather than cultivating something and building a relationship. And the frustrating thing about that is that it's not profitable doing it that way. <laughs> like, it's not It's not profitable spending all that time driving ads towards something, getting someone on an email list, treating them like total crap, and then not getting the conversion rate. It, it's not a profitable way of running a business. Um, so they're always going to have badly engaged email lists. So I, I don't really understand why they do that. Um, I think it, it's, it's, it's a numbers game. And I think a lot of the time it's, um, to yeah. be honest, it's, yeah, I'm going to put it this way. It's preying on people who don't know. Exactly. Don't really know better. Like I don't, I'm not saying I'm incredible at marketing. I know everything, but I don't buy many courses because I come across very few courses that I think are actually going to add value to me. Yeah. But there are so many people who don't have the experience who do saying. get suckered in and and say, yeah. well, you know, for three, four hundred dollars, I can get a course that's going to teach me how to do Facebook advertising or whatever. And I've got massive issues with that. that I don't want to get into because we haven't got much time, but effectively it's, it comes down to that. There's no marketing involved. They're literally telling, teaching people how to run campaigns and how to use the actual campaign tool. Yeah. There's no actual marketing no. uh, learning in there. And that's the difference. There's, it's like this is how I made a million pounds and it's like okay well great that's how you made a million pounds but that doesn't mean that's how I'm gonna make a million pounds right you yeah. know there's there's no there's no teaching or that well there's teaching in there but there's no learning to be had right um so I that's a big pet peeve for me and then um I guess I guess another one is people who just don't give a damn about their audience at all um and and I guess I'm being harsh when I say that the pet peeve is when someone sends an email out and they are just going through the motions of sending it out, right? They know they need to send the email out. So they've just put some nonsense together. And very often this is, this is, this, this is a hangover from Russell Brunson um, and, and his kind of storm into the industry, into the marketing industry. He created something called infotainment now, the idea of infotainment is still a good idea. The problem with it is that you're assuming very often the way that people like Russell Brunson go about the concept of infotainment is I'm going to tell you a story about my life because I'm fantastic and you want to know about my story, right? People don't care. <laughs> like in, in the harshest way possible, your list does not give a damn about your life. Unless you are some celebrity and someone is following you because they they're enamored with the fact that you are a celebrity, people don't give a damn. So yeah. 
and and these people haven't thought about their audience. They're either just going through the motions, they've sort of keyed into something like that. Um, but everything's about them. And we have to think about the fact that as, as humans, we are intrinsically selfish. We can only understand the world around us by understanding it through our own lens. So we are always looking at something and going, what's in it for me? Yeah. So when you send something out to your audience and you're like, look how amazing I am. I did. The, I got up at 4 a.m. this morning and, and did 50 emails and 500 push-ups and had three children before 12 o'clock, you know? that no one cares no one cares about that kind of stuff especially if you're sending it repeatedly your engagement yeah. is going to tank um so instead try and think about what are you what does your audience actually want to know what is your audience actually interested in and try and craft messages that they are wanting to receive and that's that's not bias psychology that's a little bit more common sense and i know i sound super yeah. right about that, but it really really pisses me off no it, it is simple i mean obviously yeah. you can't it's difficult to go down to, to a one-to-one level sometimes uh, mm. unless you've got the data and the ability to segment yeah. um, personalized like that. But just simply saying, you know, you, you can, you can get a sort of segment from your database, prepare an email for them and say, right, if I was in the segment of, and I fit this criteria, what's in this email for me, how yeah. would I respond to it? Yeah. And if you're not, if you are, if you're not going to click through, then why are you sending it? Yeah. Um, and I suppose you could create an email for you as well mm. or just, yeah. You know, what I suppose, however you're doing it, think, how would you fit into this or, or think about someone else, you know, who would fit the criteria for that email that you're setting up. Does that email add value to their life or would yeah. it? Um, and if the answer is no, then you've got to rethink it. But I think there are other issues though going on. There's, there's issues with resource and time and experience yes. um, because businesses for sure keep them lean and stuff which causes problems but yeah um unfortunately we're we're out of time which is a shame because i think we could have gone for hours but this <laughs> has been really really great stuff and i'm definitely going to go buy your book because it looks really interesting I, and i like the name <laughs> even though it says hack I, I i read it in a different way i i Good. thought it meant like you know like hacking computers like Good. that's what i meant that is that's, what i meant <laughs> That's, that's the right way of thinking about it. So, um, yeah, if people want to find out more or get in touch, what's the best way of doing that? Um, so you can head over to the website. It's just automationninjas.com. Um, you can find me on Instagram. It's um, sort of at Kenda MacDonald or at Automation Ninjas as well. We're on Twitter too, under both of the same things. Um, and you can email me anytime at Kenda at automationninjas.com. Love hearing from you guys. Awesome. Thank you so much. Understanding biopsychology is just so important. You really have to understand what your customers are thinking and how each tiny little touch point in a business is going to impact on that thought process. So when you're building ad campaigns, writing product pages, welcome flows, etc., always be thinking about the experience the customer has had and the experience that they're heading towards. If you're always thinking about the customer first, their wants and needs, you'll build a much more effective customer journey. If you'd like to hear more about biopsychology, reach out to Kendra on LinkedIn. Any other podcast questions, feedback, guest requests, uh, send them over to will at customersuclick.com. Next up, I've got John Halley with me from Wonderkind, and we're going to be talking about why brands need to be focusing on one-to-one communications. But until then, keep those customers clicking.